0: in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com.
1: Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need for the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply.
2: It was an unusually warm December night in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and the worker running the register at the corner store in Delhi off Airport Road was having a horrible time. She'd just hung up the phone with the police for the third time in as many hours that evening and hoped they'd show up as fast as possible. This was 1973, so you'd think there were some unruly leftover hippies ruining the clerk's night with their stoner shenanigans, or maybe some local teenagers throwing rocks at cats. or whatever kids did before cell phones. But no, it was just regular, hardworking, Allentown folk. The line for the gas pumps ran almost half a mile down the road, almost reaching the airport. The air was thick with the smog of pre-regulation era big blocks chugging away, waiting to fill up. Gas prices were through the roof and tempers were just as high. Drivers pulled hoses out of each other's cars and eventually started going toe to toe before the clerk shut the whole mess down and called the cops on the rowdy scene. Unfortunately, this one small snapshot of gassing up in late 1973 wasn't unique. Noses were bloodied and eyes were blackened all over the country as tempers flared over rising gas prices, shortages at the pump, and the end of an American era. How and why did American cars go from hefty 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 to wimpy wimpy wimpy? Why were Americans so scared of running out of gas they were beating the hell out of each other at the pumps? How did we get to the point that we just accepted a 165-horsepower Corvette? Why did American manufacturers make undeniably inferior cars over a decade? And how did they dig themselves out of a mess that was largely of their own creation? Today on Past Gas, we're diving into the dark history of the malaise era. Buckle up, or don't. We won't be going that fast.
3: Past Gas Podcast about cars, it's not about hefty 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 wimpy 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 i'll give you a, a dollar tomorrow for a cheeseburger <laughs> today
4: i love wimpy dude you love wimpy wimpy and popeye let's get wimpy tattoos this weekend yes cheeseburgers and wimpy wimpy boys that dude loves cheeseburgers though Is this from Popeye?
3: (laughs) Yeah, we're talking about Popeye again, but not today. Today, we're talking about cars.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We always talk about cars. (laughs) We're always talking about cars here on Past Gas. Welcome, everybody. Uh, I am a host of this show. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined, as always, by the co-hosts of this here program. We got James Pumphrey. Hefty, hefty, hefty. And Joe Weber, wimpy, wimpy, wimpy <laughs> yeah, and th- and today we're talking about the Malays era.
4: When you guys think of Malays era cars, is there one specific car that comes to mind?
2: Yeah, just like a big, ugly American sedan, yeah, like a cream color with a bumper falling off that sucks.
3: Yeah, Cadillac had, like, an 8-liter V8 that made
4: 190 horsepower. Yeah, 8 liters, jeez. No, it made 230 horsepower, but still, that's yeah. oh, not great. It's almost th- three Fagos. I
3: <laughs> to put it into perspective that our audience will understand.
4: I, I picture just, like, a tan, like, french fry-colored Chrysler. Yeah. Like a K-platform.
2: Just like a car that you would never want to own, ever. Yeah
4: yeah the opposite of what i want <laughs> you don't want a brown car i just bought a brown car oh okay so not exactly the opposite yeah i like tell I, us about your new car no i like brown cars <laughs> um but i like little cars
3: that are efficient yeah like i like uh what's that boxing video game punch out yeah punch out yeah punch out i like cars that are the equivalent of that guy
4: yeah, he's only like five, six, five,
2: eight. Yeah, he's little. But he's got a big heart. Like, little car's big heart. Let's get into it, shall we? Yeah, sure. Let's do it. Let's talk about boring cars. Now, we're going to talk about the situations that led to some of these boring cars. The cars that got me into cars were, you know, big muscle cars, right? Looking at them in Hot Rod magazine, you know, muscle car magazine. These are my still some of my favorites. Your big block, like A-body Chryslers, your B-body Chryslers, you know, of course, like Chevelle, Camaro, all those. And their life was kind of cut short by the gas crisis and the malaise era. It's interesting to think about how that genre could have kind of evolved had this gas crisis not happened. It was probably going to happen anyway at some point or another, but it really did cut, cut those cars' lifespans short. Yeah, I wonder...
4: You know, if Japanese companies didn't put a fire under our butts, like how bad cars would be nowadays. Oh, yeah. That's like if they didn't step in during that
2: time and provide some competition. That's right, Joe. It had, had the gas crisis not happened, Japanese manufacturers probably not have as strong a foothold here as they do today. That's a good good point. So let's get into it. Let's see how that happened. The beginning of the decline of America's Big Block era didn't start along Route 66. It began far away in the Sinai Peninsula. A battle had been brewing between Israel and a coalition of Arab states led by Egypt and Syria for quite some time, and it finally came to a head on Yom Kippur in 1973. Ceasefire lines were crossed, bombs were dropped, and many, many shots were fired. This was followed by the USSR and USA rushing in to resupply their chosen allies in the battle, and that's where the problem started. A vicious war raged on, and thousands died as land was captured and returned. At the end of the day, Israel declared victory, but the true results of the war would be felt for more than a decade. Ceasefires were redeclared and sort of stuck this time, but it was too late. The Arab countries felt humiliated by the defeat at the hands of a small but well-funded army, and they took action. The Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, the big dogs of the oil world back in the day, declared an embargo against the United States for resupplying Israel during the Yom Kippur War, which had directly led to Israel's victory. The embargo banned all petroleum exports to the U.S. and dramatically cut oil production in general. It was an extreme strategy with immediate consequences for Americans. Plentiful gas had been a way of life, but that all completely blew up in American faces with the 73 embargo. President Nixon did his best to get the embargo lifted, but OPEC had no interest in changing their plans. The price of oil exploded overnight, climbed from 38 cents to 56 cents per gallon. Oh, God.
4: (laughs) Sorry, boomers. Maybe you have to put off buying that $20,000 house for maybe another 6 months. It's a lot. I'm being pretty
2: callous. That's right, Joe, you are. So gas prices jumped from $2.43 to 3.58 in today's money. So, pretty big jump. Yeah. Massive leap. While world power scrambled to end the embargo, reality-based business folks knew that finding and developing new sources of bubbling crude could take five to ten years. Gas first doubled, then tripled at the pumps, and local and national governments struggled to find a solution. Americans were asked not to put up Christmas lights, and the government lowered the speed limit to 55 miles per hour everywhere, even West Texas. I know you guys like to drive fast over there in West Texas. Yeah, we do. (laughs) For the first time since World War II, Americans were asked to sacrifice in ways that were now long gone memories. It had been 30 years since rationing lines existed. And Americans, they didn't like it at all. Do you guys see uh, people like filling up
4: jerry cans and stuff at the pump right now? I have not seen that. I saw a couple.
2: Gas doesn't keep very long. Just a just a word of advice. Well, I got I got a whole bunch in my freezer. <laughs> M- Nolan, are you drinking scotch? No, it's water. Out <laughs> of like a it's butter. Yeah, it's,
3: I'm drinking ghee, dude. <laughs> oh yeah, dude. I love ghee. I, I rub ghee all over my body. Dude, I, just, I used to put
4: it in my coffee, and then I said, I just I don't even like coffee. I'm just gonna drink this. Yeah, I like my butter clarified.
3: Until 1973, the U.S. had been fully dependent on free-flowing oil. A simple glance at any Big 3's 1971 brochure would prove it. Almost every car came equipped with a gas-chugging V8 mm-hmm. that put big horsepower numbers up on that board, baby. Oh, yeah. The top-selling car in the U.S. that year was the Chrysler New Yorker, named after New York City. <laughs> home of pizza. Uh, it had a 440 cubic inch V8. The New Yorker weighed just shy of 5,000 pounds, had 335 horsepower and 460 pounds of twerks, with enough seating for a large family, both in stature and numbers. Uh, I was gonna say, <laughs> take that as you as you will. Uh, it also hauled around a 23 gallon gas tank and would guzzle up a gallon of gas every 10 miles, all while hitting 60 miles per hour in an astonishing 10 seconds.
2: All right.
3: That's actually not as bad as I thought. I mean, that's the same as a
4: Honda Fit or uh, a mid-2000s Jeep Wrangler. This is exactly the car I was talking about. Chrysler New Yorker. Even the name. No one in New York owned a New Yorker. No (laughs) And also, I can't picture it in any other color other than tan.
3: Uh, Yeah, I could picture like a non-shiny silver. (laughs) At Ford, the Mach 1 Mustang had a beefy 351 Cleveland engine that made 270 horsepower and got about 9.6 miles per gallon. The Mach 1 would hit 60 miles per hour in 6.3 seconds, about the same as a 2020 Chevy Bolt or a PT Cruiser GT. No one's a huge fan. <laughs> uh, over at Chevy, the Caprice, their most popular model, had a 6.6 liter V8 that made 255 horsepower and gulped up a gallon every 11 miles.
2: Huh. I mean, that's still like not as much power. It's the same as Joe's Forerunner yeah <laughs> but even before um even before the gas crisis, it sounds like they you know weren't even pushing that much power like you'd expect you'd expect a six point six liter v8 to make more than two hundred fifty horsepower
4: yeah, but that like in a couple of years that engine's going to make like hundred hundred sixty or hundred seventy or something out of a six liter
2: This is before computers existed that's true, but it's also they're probably not super high compression either, so yeah. I think what we're
3: realizing right now is even before the quote-unquote malaise era, cars were pretty lazy in America Mm -hmm. at this point. So what about the Corvette America sports car? What about it, James? (laughs) The 1971 454 model pushed a pretty decent 425
2: horsepower to the rear wheels. That's what I'm talking about, baby. And run
3: up to 60 miles per hour in 5.3 seconds while slurping down. A gallon of gas every eight miles.
2: Wow. Can you imagine that? That's gnarly. Well, if gas was like a, d- 33 a buck cents. fifty, it'd be yeah, yeah I'd be like, hell but yeah. Still,
4: this the Corvette can't have a 23-gallon tank, right? It's gotta have like No, it's got a little work. Yeah. So you're just filling up all the time.
2: Yeah, but you have a Corvette. Yeah. A low five
3: second, zero to sixty is quick even by 2020 standards. The first Eco Mustangs and most premium SUVs. Easily pull 0-60s to on that board. Uh, U.S. automakers panicked as the embargo began. Auto execs had been feeling the crackle of electricity in the air that signaled some sort of oncoming storm. Oil prices hadn't been an issue yet, ever, but negotiations around them had been happening around the globe. When word came down the line to cut off OPEC production and cease sales, the reaction by automakers and auto regulators was swift. Suzuki Swift.
2: (laughs) Starting in 1973, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, started handing down rules and regulations that limited the creativity and excitement of American car creators. The orders were to make cars as efficient as possible, as fast as possible. It was all about saving any drops of gas they could, no matter the performance results. By 1975, Congress had gotten involved and passed a law to double the efficiency of passenger vehicles from 13.75 miles per gallon to a 27.5 mile per gallon average. That's huge. That is a drastic measure, especially since the real average mile per gallon was closer to 11 or 12 than 14. So reaching almost 30 was pretty much a pipe dream.
4: I want to know what like, the most efficient car was at this time. Probably some Volkswagen. Or a,
2: like some diesel, or for a Honda, yeah, maybe a diesel or a Honda or something.
3: It was the Anders Farnes wagon
2: <laughs> um,
3: It looks like a te- It looks like a teardrop. It was powered by corn oil. That's real, <laughs> and it it got nine hundred miles to the gallon. Yeah,
2: Anders
4: Farnes Yeah. <laughs>
2: Ford leadership headed to Congress and argued that to reach these standards, it would require a fleet of Pinto-sized vehicles, and they'd be required to stop making trucks. Congress said that this was America, and trucks wouldn't count towards the final tally, and Ford left happy. Around this time, the Environmental Protection Agency climbed aboard the master plan to make cars smaller and more efficient, and started heaping their own rules onto the pile. In turn, NHTSA came back with regulations around car bumpers and impact ratings. The oncoming storm that automakers had been sensing finally arrived. So now you got all these different regulations coming in all at once.
3: Not only do you have to make them more fuel efficient, now you got to make them bigger. Here's stuff that you got to add to the car. It's got to be safer. Yeah, like shock. uh, You got to add like shocks in the bumpers. We got to be able to hit it at five miles per hour and nothing happens to it. Mm-hmm. But also you have to improve fuel efficiency like a lot. It. I mean, I imagine if, if you're an American automaker at this time, like I imagine there were a lot of guys and gals who went home to their partner and was like, they just want me to fail. You <laughs> well, know, like, I don't know what to do at this point. You
2: yeah. know what I mean? I think certainly because of fuel prices too. Amer- the, the American automakers at this point had kind of, I think rested on their laurels a little bit. They knew that like they had complete market dominance in the U S you know, besides muscle cars, like, you know, you, you look at the big sedans, like the New Yorker that we're talking about. It's just like, yeah, it's a big fat sedan that's slow, as <laughs> even though it has a giant engine, it's
3: a big fat sedan that's slow. As <laughs> 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 that was actually the, the commercial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the new Chrysler New Yorker. It's a big fat sedan
2: that's slow. That's as slow. Like it's not. A, it's not exactly innovation. So I think, I think yeah, it would definitely be frustrating and uh, a l- overwhelming for sure. It's definitely
4: not innovation that excites. That's for sure.
2: That's, that's for, for sure. sure. Yeah, sure. but it's also. There's also the, the culture of uh, complacency over there in Detroit at this time. So, I mean, it's just like the perfect storm of change coming towards them.
4: Yeah, and Lee Iacocca is played by Marky Mark. Oh, dude, I would love to see a Marky Mark Lee
3: Iacocca movie. Yeah. I call it the <laughs> Mustang. How's your New Yorker? Hey, it's a little <laughs> car. It's got a big <laughs> V8 in it. <laughs> It's called a Mustang. Yeah, it's an American horse. <laughs> Kale Shelby,
1: nice to meet you.
3: We'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors.
1: Big thanks to eBay for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Passion, drive, patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride alive eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. We're talking superchargers, turbos, exhaust kits, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need for the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply.
3: By 1975, America's sports car, the Corvette, was on life support. What was once a boulevard destroyer that got kind of close to modern horsepower levels and zero to 60 times was now emaciated and neutered. Think of a very thin man with no genitals. (laughs) (laughs) The miles of vacuum lines and charcoal canisters that were used to clean the emissions destroyed the ability to even light the wheels up along previous mentioned boulevard. Under the hood of the 1975 Corvette was a cast iron 350 cubic inch engine with an 8.5 to 1 compression ratio that made 165 horsepower, which is about the same as a 2006 Miata. Um, The Miata weighs a thousand pounds less. That Miata will also do zero to 16 in six and a half seconds while the 75 Corvette uh, took 7.7 seconds to reach that speed (laughs) um, and got a reasonably impressive 18 miles to the gallon.
2: Yeah, that's pretty good. This is the the Boogie Nights Corvette. Oh. You like my car, (laughs) Dirk? The
3: efficiency. uh, uh, He he drove a Z. He had like... uh, His car was a Z, but Dirk had a...
4: We're hitting all uh, those
2: Marky Mark movies. Yeah, Dirk had the Corvette. Philip Seymour Hoffman had the Nissan.
4: We need the tapes so we can get
3: the money so we can pay for the tapes. I used to do a character called Out of Breath Marky Mark. (laughs) It's like, hey, thanks for inviting me to the party. Did you know your elevator's out of order? I had to climb up four flights of stairs. Here's a glass of wine. Is Donnie here yet? <laughs> <laughs> the efficiency numbers were in the right place but for a sports car uh it wasn't super sporty. The Mustang didn't do much better. By 1975 that Mach 1 Mustang that used to make 255 horsepower had shriveled up into a Pinto-like Mustang too. This is the car that Starlord drove.
2: Yes, or Starlord's dad.
4: Yeah, Starlord's
2: dad. It's I feel cool like Starlord's dad
4: car. would be wiser too by this car
2: he's a planet oh yeah he's god spoiler right? alert he's a planet yeah
3: it was making a whopping 140 horsepower and would struggle to 60 miles per hour in 11.4 seconds now those are the cars that are supposed to be fast in the non-sports car passenger side the worst example of the malaise era was the ford granada a unibody luxury sedan it had a cast iron 249 cubic inch inline six. That's a huge V6. That's, that's big. That made 70 horsepower.
2: <laughs> oh my God,
4: no.
3: It's a big car. It weighed 3,100 pounds and was 25 inches longer than the new Bronco. For all of the sacrifices a person would make to drive the Granada, they were repaid with a 12 and a half <laughs> average mile per gallon rating, which didn't even come close to the new standards Congress had set at the time. Road and track, who are struggling to find great cars within the U.S. market to even discuss, dubbed the Granada reasonably
2: adequate. <laughs> yeah, I guess it. it's it's reasonably adequate. I guess
3: that's my mix. The name of my new mixtape, reasonably adequate. James Pumphrey, yeah. reasonably adequate. Dutch money, reasonably adequate. Dutch money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
4: That's his new rapper name. Yeah. It's pretty good. Now,
3: as far as aesthetics go, perhaps the defining visual trait of Malays era cars is their prominent, often unsightly bumpers, the result of increased safety regulation. While eventually manufacturers would learn to incorporate these bumpers into their designs, car bumpers of the 1970s looked tacked on. And that's because they were. Of course, one person's shag carpeting is another person's design dream. Aesthetics are subjective, but along with design touches like overly plush trim, cursive lettered badges, gilded fender vents, and faux wood, many 70s cars look decidedly antiquated, not because they're old, but because they look old. I mean, they're 50 years old <laughs> at this
2: point. Whoa. Nolan, your car is almost 100 years old. (laughs) I mean, yeah, it's 70 years old, which is closer to 100 than than 50 is. Yeah.
3: Now, with that in (laughs) mind, it's easy to imagine a malaise era would have occurred even without the gas crisis, and its ensuing crunch on the American economy. American manufacturers had drifted away from what consumers wanted, while Japanese manufacturers were anticipating those needs. The crisis was just quite literally fuel for the fire. <gasps> Whoa! It's worth looking at the role of America's main competition in making the Malaise era even
4: Malaysier nah. for Detroit. Uh, that sounds like a like I'm gonna name my daughter Malaysier. Malaysier sounds like a sandwich at Arby's. <laughs> that's how you feel after you eat it yeah. <laughs> you're like oh I don't wouldn't care if I died right now <laughs> even malaysier the new <laughs> subway <Malaysinator. laughs> yeah At extra horsey
3: sauce dude horsey sauce can get it it's a spicy
4: <laughs>
3: it's a spicy white sauce yeah it's a rare
4: breed <laughs> mayonnaise and horse 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 better. Better. Horse rash. Horse crowd, I was going to (laughs) call.
3: Horse weed.
2: (laughs) Cars are big business, and one company's failure is almost always an opportunity for another group to succeed. In the Malays era, all the American manufacturers were struggling equally. As we've discussed on this podcast, it was the Japanese companies who would take advantage of the situation. The reputation of Japanese automakers had a long way to go with American consumers. Right after World War II, many Americans were prejudiced against the country they had just spent years pitted against. But in the 50s, that started to fade as high-quality products like cameras and motorcycles entered the American market and found success. Honda's motorcycles, in particular, caught on in a big way in the post-war generation, Going from half a million in sales in 1960 to 77 million in sales in 1965. That's a massive growth and a testament to Honda's organizational capacities that they could meet exploding demands. The early focus on motorcycles also told a key part of the story. While American cars were ballooning, Japanese cars were focused on efficiency and reliability. And keeping things small and simple were key factors of that philosophy. The timing was uncannily good for Honda. They started selling cars in 1970, first offering the N600 sedan, a small, humbly-powered car whose most impressive stat was achieving over 36 miles per gallon. Like with motorcycles, sales were explosive. Six years after launching, there were 630 Honda dealerships throughout the U.S. Honda's sales approximately doubled every single year from 1970 to 1975. Wow. Wow. The textbook definition of exponential growth. Similarly, Toyota had entered the U.S. market in 1957 and at first struggled to succeed, but saw massive growth in the 70s. Honda and Toyota were forced by necessity to adapt to the market where they were newcomers, while American companies blindly doubled down on what they were already doing and lost. It's interesting to think that we may be at a similar crossroads now as companies place bets on the still emerging electric car market.
4: You know, I wouldn't be pissed if one of our fans wanted to do, like, uh, the Beach Boys Kokomo, but switch all the, all the words for,
2: like, car manufacturers. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I know what you're saying. I can't, I can't improvise that right now, because...
4: Honda, Toyota. Ooh. Ooh, you wanna go-go. <laughs> <laughs> Taihatsu. And Daewoo. <laughs> Maybe buy a day Daewoo. We get a Kia,
3: a Hyundai. Ooh, I wanna hand it down there.
4: Tokyo. <laughs> there we go. Someone make that for us, please. We'll get there fast, but they sip gas slow. Oh, man.
3: That's where we wanna go. As far as the malaise era's effects, the loss of fun was felt beyond country roads. Take me homes and highways. <laughs> At the racetrack, representatives from NASCAR, IMSA, USAC, SCCA, and NHRA felt that same oncoming storm and got together in Chicago just before Thanksgiving in 1973 to discuss what they could do to keep regulators off their backs. Regulators! At the meeting, they formed the National Motorsports Committee and appointed leaders. But a few days later, Nixon signed an executive order that closed all gas stations in the U.S. from Saturday at 9 p.m. until Sunday at midnight. What? I've never heard of this before. That's like the best day to get gas. Yeah. Now, this was devastating to racing, and there were suddenly very real discussions about moving Sunday racing to Saturday, which would go against the entire premise of win on Sunday, sell on Monday.
4: You guys, the saying's going to be messed up if dude, we move
3: were we the day. What are we going to say?
2: Win on Saturday, sell on Monday? do not even freaking rhyme, dude. People forget on Sunday. They're going to forget about the race on Saturday, and then they're not going to buy on Monday. Dude,
3: they're going to drink so many mimosas, they're going to forget that we even won, dude. (laughs) Dude, Sunday's when the Simpsons comes on, bro. They're going to be talking about the Simpsons. No
4: one's going to want to buy a car on Sunday when they have the day free. They want to buy a car when they got to take off of work. Yeah, you got to go
3: to work on Monday, but you got to ask your boss to take day off.
4: I got to buy car, boss. I got to buy car, boss. I just watched The
3: Simpsons
4: last <laughs> night. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home,
3: Behind the scenes, the National Motorsports Committee had been hitting the books and putting together some interesting research. The NMC had determined that it wasn't auto racing that consumed the most fuel. It was actually family vacations, (laughs) okay, (laughs) just so you know, (laughs) that burned 5.4 billion gallons of gas per year, followed by business travel, people going to movies, football and basketball fans, and finally... Horse racing, uh, which they claimed burned more barrels than auto racing. What a bunch of
2: babies. I I just, it's hilarious that horse, I mean, yeah, you got to tow horses in big trailers, but you know what you also have to tow in big trailers? Race cars. Yeah. And then those race cars... Burn a ton of gas. Yeah, horses aren't out there farting. Farting emissions, I should say. They are farting, but not farting emissions. Trust
3: me, they're farting. If you're going to outlaw racing, outlaw vacation. Yeah. It's like, yo, vacation should take more resources.
4: It's more important. If I can't take a vacation, no one can. It's ridiculous. Anyway.
3: Business travel, people traveling for business, outlaw that. It's like, no, stupid. <laughs> that, that's more important than the dumb <laughs> that
4: you're doing. Uh, ever pick up phone much? Uh,
3: Maybe crack book some. All right. While well, most people call the findings suspicious, the Federal Energy Office called them reasonably <laughs> adequate because the NMC was using spectator travel to estimate the use of gasoline. Now, instead of shutting down auto racing like the NMC had feared, the government just put them in charge of regulating themselves to reduce fuel by 25%.
2: Self-regulation always works. Yeah. Well.
3: NASCAR led the charge with an ambitious 30% reduction of fuel use that very year. Good job, NASCAR. I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Nice. They slashed races by 10% and reduced practice time from eight days to five They canceled the 24 hours of Daytona. Throughout 1974, NASCAR hemmed and hawed with different carb sizes and plates, but eventually all restrictions ended and they settled on restricting engine sizes to no larger than 358 cubic inches, a mandate that is still in effect
2: today. No way. Interesting. Yahweh, Nolan. Yeah, yeah, way. Where are you now?
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: I've been watching The Righteous Gemstones a lot lately. It's pretty funny.
2: Uh, this is a dig- digression, but I got YouTube's How to Dismantle a, an Atomic Bomb when I was like 11 years old because <laughs> I loved YouTube. <laughs> 2 <laughs> That was like my favorite album in seventh grade or whatever, or whenever I got it. Anyway, weird album for a 12-year-old to be into. Automakers throughout the 1970s refocused their offerings around luxury and ride comfort instead of performance, as they had to further restrict and choke engines with emission standards and efficiency rules. But car buyers fled in droves to smaller Japanese cars. By the early 80s, cars were starting to become more forward-looking and futuristic, even if their engines were subpar. It wasn't until 1985, more than a decade after the embargo, that the Mustang finally broke 200 horsepower again. The Corvette, leading the futuristic charge with the C4, pointy boy, also broke 200 horsepower by 1984. By any standard, the early 1980s sports cars were still considered, quote, reasonably adequate. Both the Mustang and Corvette were dipping below 7 seconds in the 0-60 to times, and they were improving incrementally from there. The emissions equipment was starting to get out of its own way, while the fuel efficiency was improving just a bit. The Mustang GT was doing about 20 miles per gallon, while the Corvette did 17. As carburetors were replaced with fuel injection, it got even better from there. Cars got more efficient and faster without sacrificing how much is spent at the pump. Side note, my Mustang gets averages about 14 miles per gallon around town. I I'm in hell for many the official end of the malaise era came in 1987 when congress raised the national speed limit once again to 65 miles per hour and there's still some love out there for those 70s era cars in the past few years used cars from that era have appreciated at a faster clip than those from other decades for some weird reason of course they started from the basement but still anything can become nostalgic and worth revisiting with enough distance of course, with the current gas crunch of 2022, that nostalgia for an inefficient era may fade quickly. However you feel about the cars of the malaise era, it's a decade that stands out as one of the biggest turning points in automotive history. The end.
4: Malaise much? Um, what's a sauce at Arby's again? Malaiseer? Horsey sauce. I'm hungry now. Yeah, me too. And want some Arby's. Yeah, I want the meats. Um, you guys like those Jamocha shakes?
2: They sell a, a mocha shake at Arby's? Yeah,
4: Jamocha shake.
2: So after you house like a fat stack <laughs> of greasy meat, you're going to wash it down with coffee? Uh, not just Dude, coffee, sounds, a coffee that shake.
3: Coffee and sounds... ice cream, Nolan. Coffee and lots and lots of milk. Oh, my milk. God.
2: That sounds like a disaster, dude. Uh,
4: Wait until you try it, man. Dip a little curly fry in that Jamocha shake. (laughs) Nom, 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 nom.
3: Dude, curly fries are very good. Do they have waffle fries there?
4: Not sure. I think their thing is curly fries. I guess I'll have to hit Chick-fil-A, too.
3: (laughs) But I can't on Sunday, just like you can't buy gas in the 70s on (laughs) Sunday.
4: That's the most striking thing to me about this whole script is I, I didn't know that I didn't know that they restricted like cause, uh, that's when everyone gets gas
3: <laughs> yeah it's, when, it's gas, gas day. day um it is like kind of fun not fun but interesting to hear about how people 50 years ago responded to a crisis um and it's very relatable yeah. to because I'm I'm sure like our kids are going to be doing a uh, direct to brain chip podcast <laughs> yes. about
2: you know, COVID, yeah, and like pe- people couldn't get toilet yeah. paper. Oh, side note, um, earlier I was talking about how long gas keeps, so in a well sealed container, gas lasts about six months, give or take a month or so before it starts to oxidize. So just be careful about that if you're storing gas. You only have about half a and, year. And so be very
4: careful about the the material that the container is. If it's a certain yes. type of plastic, yeah. it can
2: degrade, and that's not good. You're going to want to get one of those uh, uh, steel jerry cans. Steel jerry steel is... Steel
3: jerry cans. There, That's a message to leave with. <laughs> Listen, kids, steel jerry cans.
2: <laughs> steel jerry sounds like a ska band. Anyway, uh... <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Pass Gas. As always, thank you to our producer, Thomas Willette, and our other producer, Gavin Kinsell, and our writer this week.
4: Jacob Desjardins, who's helping the people of Ukraine.
2: Uh, He's a better man than I. Dude, don't blow his cover, dude. Don't blow his cover. No, I want Putin to know. Okay. Follow my boys at James Pumphrey, at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at Nolan J. Sykes if you'd like. Uh, Tell your friend about the show. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. I
3: just found a new pocket in my pants. (laughs) (laughs) All right, guys. I'm going to go find something to put in this.